You're listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a World Affairs Council conversation with authoritative voices discussing significant newsmaking issues and individuals. Sponsored by Greenberg Traurig, LLP. How we as individuals or nations interact with the internet and the digital world is being tested daily. And this relationship is one that continues to evolve. A massive orchestrated targeted cyber attack is increasingly recognized by defense experts as a serious threat and one that perhaps we are unprepared to defend against. To discuss these questions and others, we are talking today with Adam Siegel, the author of The Hacked World Order, How Nations Fight, Trade, Maneuver, and Manipulate in the Digital Age. Dr. Siegel is director of the Digital and Cyberspace Policy Program at the Council on Foreign Relations and holds the IRA a Lippmann Chair in Emerging Technologies and National Security. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. On the Council on Foreign Relations website, there's this cyber operations tracker, which as it names implies, carries reports of cyber attacks. Give us a sense of the scope as well as the severity and origins of some of these attacks. So the tracker goes back to 2005 and tracks every known reported state operation. So we're not focused on terrorists or non-state actors. We're looking for attacks that come from nation states and that have been publicly reported. So there's probably a large number that we don't know about because no one's discovered them or they haven't been reported. The vast majority of them are espionage, so spying for political or military purposes. Uh, And increasingly, we're seeing new additions, so small states that you wouldn't think to be cyber players, but in the last quarter, we added Vietnam and Lebanon to the nation states that conduct these type of operations. Which states are really the most threatening? The ones we see most are, um, not surprising, China. Or perhaps most capable. (laughs) Yeah, we see China and Russia the most often, and then some that have been attributed to the United States. The United Kingdom, not many for Israel, but certainly is a capable player. But a lot of this has to do about, again, public reporting, reliance on English press, and a lot of the cybersecurity companies that report these attacks tend to be American, and they tend to report on Russian and Chinese operators, not so much American. You know, last night when we had dinner, you gave us some examples, and I was somewhat surprised that there'd really only been two major attacks that could be considered almost acts of war. Yeah, two attacks that have been destructive or caused physical outcomes. The first one is the U.S.-Israel attack on the Iranian centrifuges at Natanz to try and slow and disrupt the Iranian nuclear program. And then in 2015 and 2016, Russian hackers turned off the power grid in Kiev and plunged Kiev in December into darkness for about five or six hours. Uh, certain neighborhoods. So those two are the only ones that would perhaps reach what under international law would be considered a use of force and armed attack. Because of physical destruction? Because of physical destruction. We've seen massive disruption and we've seen data destruction. So there was an attack called Shamoon that we think was the Iranians on Saudi Aramco, which destroyed data on about 20 or 30,000 computers and knocked Saudi Aramco business operations offline for about two weeks, but had no impact on refining or other oil production. So countries have the right to defend themselves, and you also have to look at reciprocity and retaliation. How do you judge this when you're looking at cyber warfare? Well, what we've seen is that states have been struggling to figure out what to do in response, and they've tended to use other instruments. The United States has relied heavily on sanctions and indictments of hackers uh, when we can identify them. 
We don't really know what other states have done. Uh, the British have mainly done a kind of campaign of naming and shaming, so calling out hackers. But states are really struggling to decide what's the best way to respond, how do you deter attackers in this space, and how do you raise costs to them? Because right now there doesn't seem to be any cost. The international community, say on human rights or proliferation of nuclear weapons, have been able to negotiate agreements. Whether or not they're followed, that's another question. But where does that stand in the issue of internet security and cyber warfare? Yeah, the cyberspace has been a real challenge to those types of agreements. You know, arms agreements are based on you know, verification and trust. You can count the number of nuclear missiles you have, you can do inspections, you can position the weapons farther back from a border, or do exercises, all those things that can be visually seen. You can't do any of that with a cyber weapon, right? I can't inspect everyone's computers. It's very hard to demonstrate a cyber weapon. So there have been attempts to try and discuss what might be called the rules of the road or the norms of behavior, responsible state behavior. And there was some progress in the UN and a group called the Group of Government Experts about what some of those rules should be. For example, states shouldn't attack other states' critical infrastructure during peacetime. But that process in June of 2017 was unable to continue. They failed to reach a consensus, primarily over this question of self-defense. The United States wanted to be more explicit about when you could use self-defense, and Russians and Chinese and others uh, didn't want to have that conversation. Let's talk for a minute about here in the United States. How well is the private sector working with the government? Because we saw with the Apple situation a few years ago that there's a pretty large disconnect. I think there is both a disconnect and a lot of cooperation. I think there's a disconnect, as you mentioned, over big issues like encryption and how to solve the problem of going dark, right? So the FBI and law, other law enforcement no longer has uh, access to a criminal's phone or terrorist phone because of the encryption. That has been very problematic. The technology community has basically said there's no way to provide access to an encrypted device without weakening security for all. The FBI has argued that no, that the scientists could somehow come up with some solution. But on the cybersecurity side, there's increasingly, I think, a fair amount of cooperation on information sharing, right? So what you want to do is once you see... And who's taking the lead for that from the perspective of the U.S. government? Homeland Security uh, and groups called ISACs, Information Sharing and Analysis Centers, that are sector-specific. So the financial sector is probably head and shoulders above everyone because they have been dealing with this for a long time mm -hmm. and they have the most to protect. And so they will share information among the companies with the DHS and with the intelligence communities. Energy, chemical sectors, other, these are also coordinated through these ISACs. And then there are other private sector initiatives to try and share that information. Primarily, there's been a complaint from the private sector that the government is willing to take information and not all that willing to share threat information because it involves revealing intelligence assets. I've heard that they've gotten better at it, but intelligence sharing is not going to solve all of the problems. And who has the security clearance? And who has the security clearance, but it only helps for threats you've seen before. So something new is harder to share information about. And so we've been trying to figure out how do you create incentives for the private sector to invest more in cybersecurity and to make sure that they're investing in the right things. You know, one of the justifications I've read of the Trump administration used in applying the new tariffs was that China had not lived up to the 2015 agreement that was reached between Presidents Obama and Xi regarding the cyber agreement. Is that true? Has China not lived up to its expectations? And were the tariffs an appropriate response? The USTR report is, seems to be of two minds about that. There is a sentence in there that says, we don't think they've held up their agreement. 
And then another sentence later that says, cybersecurity companies think they have upheld the agreement and the total number of attacks have gone down. The total number may have gone down, but they may have gotten more stealthy. They may be harder to find. So we don't really know the broader impact. Mm -hmm. I think you know, the USDR is concerned about several types of technology transfer, the theft, the forced joint ventures, failure to protect intellectual property within the China market. I do think it was time to respond and push back. I'm not sure the tariffs are the smartest way of doing it. Already we've seen that lots of lobbying happens and it kind of creates a, everyone trying to make sure that they're not the ones that are mentioned. Uh -huh. But it does seem to have forced the Chinese to some negotiations. And right now, according to reports in the journal yesterday, that they're trying to negotiate some types of uh, either Chinese purchases or other ways of avoiding the tariffs. We have just another minute or so, and I was curious, your background, you earned your doctorate in Chinese studies, is that right? That's right. So how did you transition to the cyber world? The book before this one was on the rise of China as a technology power and innovation in Asia. And while I was fairly optimistic about the U.S. being able to respond, given the strengths that we traditionally have had in innovation, there was a page in that book that said, Oh, and by the way, if the Chinese keep stealing all of our intellectual property, then it'll be much harder to compete. Finished that book and I thought, huh, I probably should write more than just a page on it. And so started doing more work on cyberspace. And Do you have a technical background then? Or, I have or not. You developed it? Or? I have always written on technology policy and technology issues, but I'm a political scientist by training. So what I usually say is I've developed enough technical expertise to know when I don't know yep. and identify the people I need to ask. And so tell us more about your work at the council. As you mentioned at the beginning, we have the cyber operations tracker, mm -hmm. which is available on the website. We have a blog called Net Politics, which deals with a whole range of digital and cyber policy issues, not only you know espionage and cyber attacks, but also the recent brouhaha over Facebook and Cambridge Analytica and mm -hmm. digital privacy issues. So you can subscribe to that. And we have a policy series called the Cyber Policy Brief Series that comes out every other month that addresses these issues in more in-depth, usually, again, on security and digital trade issues. So you can just go to CFR.org? Just go to CFR.org and uh, click on the link for the Digital and Cyber Policy Program. Well, I want to thank you, Adam Siegel, very much for joining us today. The author of The Hacked World Order, How Nations Fight, Trade, Maneuver, and Manipulate in the Digital Age. To our loyal listeners of Global IQ Minute, I apologize for the background noise, but we're in a location that we didn't know they were doing some construction. I could say we were just trying to mask the talk because we're exactly. talking about cybersecurity. Hope everyone has a great day. And again, Adam, thanks for being with us. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Subscribe and rate Global IQ Minute on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. For information about a World Affairs Council in your community, visit worldaffairscouncils.org. Global IQ Minute is sponsored by Greenberg Traurig LLP, a global firm with 2,000 attorneys in 38 offices across the globe. Visit the firm at gtlaw.com.